Hello, and welcome to Stepping Into Truth. I'm your host, Omkari Williams, and I'm very glad you're here with me today. This is the podcast where we take on the issues of race, gender, and social justice. And I really love these conversations that I have with people doing work in these realms. But the point of these conversations isn't just that they're intellectually interesting. They're really meant to move us into action, action in our personal area of passion and interest. And in this wild time in the world, each of us is being called to act. But what action looks like depends on who we are, what we care about, and what we have to offer. There's no one way of being an activist. Each of us needs to find our way. And to help you find your way, I've created the Activist Archetype Quiz. And you can find a link to the quiz in the show notes and on my website, omkariwilliams.com. My guest today is musician and disability rights activist Galen Lee. In 2016, Galen Lee won NPR Music's Tiny Desk Contest, and she's been on the road ever since playing her unique mix of haunting original songs and traditional fiddle tunes. So far, the singer, songwriter, and violinist has played over 600 concerts in 43 states and eight countries. Galen also does speaking engagements about disability rights, finding inner freedom, and accessibility in the arts. Galen's currently working on a memoir that she plans to release in 2022. Now, I met Galen last year, and as soon as I did, I knew I wanted to have her on the podcast, so I'm very excited to finally have that happen. And Galen, welcome. I'm so happy to be speaking with you. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. This is going to be a really interesting conversation because there's so many things that you do that are just so important. And I'm going to start with sort of an odd one, maybe. But in doing my research for this interview, I came across an article that you wrote where you started with a phrase that I absolutely love. And the phrase was, mind the gap, which is this very British phrase. And that connects me with my family. But I also love it because there's so many gaps that we sort of skate by in life that need our attention. And the gap that you're talking about in this space is the gap that exists when we think of, or more accurately, don't think of, disabled people as sexual beings. Now, I know it's a big topic, and we could honestly spend the entire episode just talking about this, but I'm going to ask you to sort of narrow it down and talk about why it's so important that we pay attention to this, that we mind this particular gap in our understanding of those with disabilities. Well, um, I guess, to be honest, people with disabilities in some studies that I read while I was writing this paper that ended up turning into a TED Talk for um, the Mind the Gap TED Talk. When I was researching it, sexuality was rated as one of the highest areas of oppression for people with disabilities, feeling like they aren't able to express it, or in some cases, there's actually a pretty high rate of sexual abuse. There's just a lot of issues around sexuality that leave people alienated or out of the discussion. And if you can imagine going through life feeling like your sexuality is not valued or acknowledged, that is a feeling of being oppressed or of left out. It definitely affected me. But the point of the TED Talk is that I was able to have this kind of insight or epiphany where I realized that even though I was left out of sexuality, it didn't mean like the good, the bonus of that is that I was able to kind of explore sexuality without 
a lot of societal pressures because nobody expected anything of me. And so I could just kind of be free to develop who I was and become myself. But I think a lot of people, you know, would like to be acknowledged in society. And so I kind of took that a different direction and ran with it. But I still think it's important that we're seeing people with disabilities as whole people who need love and want to give love and, you know, the way that any other, you know, section of society needs to be acknowledged as whole people. Um, Sexuality is definitely a part of that. That's such a perfect way of describing it is to see people with disabilities as whole people, because I think that for a lot of us, we don't do that. You know, we sort of see the disability as this lack And so then it's very easy to extrapolate that out in a whole bunch of ways that actually have got nothing to do with anything and just sort of close our eyes to the the scope and the range and the depth of people with disabilities, despite whatever their specific disability might be. Because I have to say, I mean, I honestly, I never really thought about it. I mean, I just never thought about how we look at people with disabilities and often just assume that they're non-sexual beings. Why would we assume that? It's such a weird thing to think. I mean, maybe it's partly because we have such weird attitudes around sex in general often, but it's just, I think it's really important because I think when we close people out of one really significant area of human interaction, that we're also closing them out of other areas of human interaction without even being aware of it. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I'm so passionate about this idea that we need to include disability history and disability rights education in school, because actually there's historical reasons that people were left out. I mean, eugenics is a real part of disability history, unfortunately, and people were forced sterilized by the thousands, I mean, really often, they would go in for a medical procedure and come out realizing that they had been sterilized without their permission. And that happened all the time because people with disabilities weren't encouraged to marry. And even now in our political system, there's remnants of that. And I can't give you 100% definite, this is the reason this law exists. But there are laws that make it so that if you are a disabled person, and you marry someone who has a job, for example, you won't qualify for your benefits anymore. Like they make the threshold so low that if you, if you partner with someone, you lose your benefits. And that happens to some extent in other disadvantaged economic groups too, except for with disability, it's very specifically tied to marriage. And I would love to see somebody study how that kind of came about, because there is a lot of ideas that was actually not just, you know, a non-issue, but an active dislike of people with disabilities getting married and and having kids and, you know, doing those kinds of things. And so there's historical basis, but we don't learn about it in school. So people walk around just assuming that their ideas of sexuality and disability are just the way it is, when in reality, there's a lot of history behind this kind of stuff. So you're basically saying that people intentionally put these laws that affect marriage to a person with a disability into place as a way of deterring? Um, Um, I mean, that would be my guess. I know for sure that the eugenics laws were 100% aimed at keeping people with disabilities from having kids. You know, that for sure happened. And institutionalization separates people from society, and it's very difficult 
to get married if your benefits are going to go away, right? And so I think there's a connection. I've never seen research saying that, but I just know from it's very prohibitive specifically around marriage where people that are in 2020 can't marry the person they love because they need health care to live. Right. And and not just live, like there's a this big misconception about health care too where people think, oh, well, they need to be able to go to the doctor. But a lot of times it's more than that. You know, a person with a disability who needs personal care assistance, there's no private health care in the country that will pay for that. You'd have to be able to pay for it out of pocket if you need someone to come to your house and help you shower or use the bathroom or whatever it is. So you have to be on government health care to get those services unless you're rich enough to pay for them out of pocket. So you can't just say, oh, I don't need health care, right. even if you like, you know, a lot of people would have to go to a nursing home basically without their health care that provides them the home services they need. And so to say that you lose your benefits if you get married is, I mean, I actually did get married, even though I lost my social security income or my supplemental security income, SSI, Mm -hmm. I I knew that I was going to lose that, but I actually couldn't. And I, and because I live in Minnesota where there's a little more progressive politics, we have a healthcare program that allows me to pay a premium to keep my healthcare, um, even though I earn too much, which is great. It's called MAEPD. But if that hadn't been around, I don't think I even would have gotten married. And right. I I was like, I want to get married, even if it kind of affects me negatively financially, because I don't want to, to say I'm a second class citizen that can't get married in my own country. That's ridiculous. And so I decided to take the hit because I can work. You know, I can earn income other ways. I don't rely on SSI right now. But healthcare was definitely not something I could afford to take a hit on, you know. So if we hadn't had been able to get healthcare, we probably wouldn't have even gotten married, which is so messed up in 2020, you know. Yeah. We're, we shouldn't be talking about this stuff anymore. Yeah, this should not be a conversation that we're having at all. And actually, I was going to ask you a question about healthcare because we're in this point where one of the conversations that keeps happening is that our healthcare is at risk, our system is at risk of being further undermined. I mean, we're, there's this ongoing battle to remove protections for those with pre-existing conditions. Yeah. And I think that when most people think of pre-existing conditions, they think about people who've had cancer or some other illness. They don't think about people who are disabled and how that possibility of having that taken away that whole pre-existing conditions clause is going to affect a whole bunch of people who are not actually ill, I put that in air quotes, but have, because not everyone who has a pre-existing condition is ill, but you, you know, you have a congenital condition that would absolutely exclude you from health care if that legislation were, if that piece of legislation were to be repealed. I mean, I can only imagine what kind of financial burden that would be. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's 100% going to affect people with disabilities because not everybody with a disability is necessarily on Social Security or even Medicaid, right? You know, many right. people still still get it through their work and those people would be excluded. And not only that, um, you know, they're talking in the Republican circles about talking about changing Medicare and even things like supplemental security income. I mean, they're, they're really doing this 
this move towards, you know, we talk about in Britain, they call it austerity, but the idea that, oh, we need to cut money, we're going to cut it from the people who seriously need the programs the most. And that to me is like eugenics 2.0, right? Like why, why are we talking about cutting it from people who, who won't have access to the services? I mean, the, uh, other, there's otherwise. no morality. And, yeah. There's no morality no. to that at all. There's just not. No, not in a, not where we have like. There's definitely other avenues, and that's a that's an interesting thing. So pre-existing conditions, you know, affect a lot of people. They don't necessarily think of disability, but it's certainly aimed at targeting the vulnerable, right? And and I mean, just the way we talk about programming or even the environment, like we have to be really careful when we're discussing changes like social changes or financial changes like budget changes that we're not targeting people who don't have another way to to do what they need to do like for example in the environmental debate I read an article published by the BBC recently that said that if everybody stopped using their inhalers they would it would be the same as like taking cars off the road or something something pretty dramatic but the whole point of studying something like that where you're saying this thing that you need to live a healthy life if you didn't use it look how much better off the planet would be that bothers me that we're even having that discussion before we say wow we use a lot of plastic wrap at the grocery store like what would the environmental impact of something that doesn't hurt like a vulnerable population yeah um, especially i mean people who use inhalers need them to to survive Mm -hmm. so it's a little shocking to me but well it is and it isn't yeah. 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 So they're all tied together is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. It's this idea this idea of like let's make people question what resources um the poorest people are using but let's not look at like what the most wealthy people are doing or what our military is doing or you know we focus it in on the people who have the least means to defend themselves or get access to the press that they need. You know what I mean? Like Absolutely. um it's it's pretty targeted and that's a creepy thing that obviously has been done before in history. And I just don't, I think we really need to be talking about that and it needs to include disabled people. I mean, I think we're getting better at noticing when there's, I mean, we're not great at it obviously in America, but you know, I think we're trying to understand gender issues and race and disability still gets left out of those discussions pretty frequently in my in my experience anyways. Uh, No, I think you're right. And I think partly it's because often people are uncomfortable with people who have disabilities. And that's because we don't just deal with disability as a normal part of the human experience. And, you know, so people are uncomfortable. So they, they unconsciously or consciously exclude people who make them uncomfortable. And that's just unfortunately human nature. And, we have to battle against that to say your discomfort is actually not the issue here. The issue here is someone else has rights that need to be addressed. And if we're going to really address them, we need them to be part of the conversation. Yeah. And I think that's something that people in the disability community are working really hard to just bust into the mainstream um, saying that disability is just a form of diversity and that you, and it's not negative uh, inherently negative and that you're not going to be able to make everybody I mean what is the end goal of eliminating disability anyways right like even right. if you c- could do it 
is the goal then everybody has a certain IQ like there is no end in sight when you start saying physical difference needs to be like thought of as negative or or right. one step further eliminated there's no there's no end to that so we just need to drop that issue and then just educate people in society about how to value all of its members right and just to recognize that it it's it's a divergence from the sort of what is typical but that divergence isn't inherently negative exactly yeah so. taking the stigma not just stigma but the like i mean it's it's beyond stigma it's more like discrimination and Absolutely. a whole lot of other things you know at this point but taking the negativity out of disability and just seeing it as diversity um it allows yeah, a lot change of a lot that would actually oh, change yeah. a lot just that shift in in mindset that's a really good point i like that um, yeah you know something that you said just now reminded me of something else you had written and that absolutely stopped me in my tracks you talked about beauty having been the concepts of beauty are concepts of beauty having been usurped by capitalism and i when i read that i thought I never thought about that, you know, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought she's absolutely right. And I would love for you to talk about that. Yeah, that idea was actually in a critical theory book that I read in college called Eros and Civilization by a philosopher, a critical theorist uh, named Marcuse. Mm -hmm. Um, But he and he was writing about sexuality in general, in America, people, if they're made to feel bad about themselves in the media, for example, that they will be willing to spend money to feel better. So like if they feel like if I just lost 15 pounds, then I'll suddenly meet this artificial standard of beauty that's set forth in magazines and stuff or on TV or wherever, and they'll be willing to spend money to do that. So they'll buy diet pills or they'll join a gym or they'll do they'll buy certain clothes that make them look difference or whatever. So like the idea that if you just buy into this theory that if I do these things, then I will be beautiful, like in the magazines. And that's where I, so that's what's his theory. Right. And then I turned it on its head a little bit because I realized as I was reading that, that yes, I saw the people around me doing that. There was a lot of girls in college that were talking about how they just had to bleed, you know, highlight their hair or whatever it was that they were doing right to like fit this mold or or talking about fashion as like a thing that they needed to actually conform to but I didn't identify with it and I realized it's because of my disability I hadn't ever been included in that discussion right so I look at Cosmopolitan magazines and don't see a person that looks like me at all and 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 no matter what clothes I wear I'm going to look the same as I look and I'm going to use a wheelchair and my arms will be bendy or whatever because my arms and legs are bent. And there was nothing I was going to do that would realistically make me look like those people on the magazines. And so I had a long time ago decided, well, then what's the point of caring about those standards? And so that's where that whole sexuality talk came from, is that idea that, yes, sexuality has been usurped by capitalism, but we don't have to actually accept the vision it's putting out, we can choose to just say, I don't need to subscribe to that and then just be ourselves. And that's the whole point of, yeah. So that's sort of, so that's sort of where Marcuse and I diverged, but uh-huh. that was a pretty 
powerful book to read if you like critical theory. It was pretty cool. I really love what you said there because you know there's so much pressure on women in particular, women and young young women and girls, to attain a certain standard of beauty, and that pressure just shoves people into little tiny boxes and does not allow for a lot of individual expression. And it, it also just takes so much time and so much energy. And I feel like maybe that's part of the whole thing is if you are diverting people's time and energy away from what's important into these superficial things, then a lot of of problems in the world don't get noticed, much less addressed. And it, it just sort of feels, you know, not to be all sorts of conspiratorial about it, but it feels like there's an underlying intention to divert our focus from the things that really matter and put it yeah. on things that are, you know, just created and also beyond our control. I mean, if you're five feet tall, you're never going to be 5'8". That's just, you're, it's never going to happen. You're not going to nope. ever be tall and thin. Why are you even wasting your time thinking about it? Exactly, exactly. And just embrace who you are. That's why, I mean, I want people to do what makes them feel passionate. And so I understand that some people in the disability community want to be better represented in advertising or in modeling. But to me, I'm like, man, Let's just screw that system all together and not like let's how about everybody quit modeling? But I know that that's just partly my preference. So I try to not go too far down that road. But the idea that we're all set it like, you know, anytime we're included in that scheme, it means that we're playing along with the game of diversion sort of and distraction and just like not being who we are as individuals. I think that that is such an important thing for us to remember is that when we are focused on these externally created ideals, that we are actually diverting our attention from being ourselves and from, from just using our skills and our talents and our abilities in ways that actually might be productive in the world. And yeah. just kind of falling into this trap of doing what someone else would like us to do rather than maybe what we should be doing for our own personal satisfaction. Yeah. And I mean, I don't, yeah. And that's the thing is I, I really believe, you know, I believe that everybody has value and I really try not to judge. So if somebody's really passionate about fashion or whatever, that's an art form. And I understand that, but you know, I just try to try to keep authenticity at the center of everything we do. I mean, there, there's a really cool lady I met in Minneapolis who runs a plus size consignment store called Cake. And mm -hmm. she she's really into, I mean, super passionate about promoting bo body positivity and like looking your best. And I think that that's actually really cool because she's kind of saying it doesn't matter what's necessarily in style this season, what looks good on yeah. you. You know, it's not like I wear paper bags or anything. Like I do, I do want to look my best, but it should be your best, not like. Right. What is, what is uh, popular right now or whatever. And also just something that, you know, some unattainable goal, you know. I mean, just yeah, exactly. that you're never going to look like that. I'm never going to look like that. Why are we doing this? Well, I wanna, exactly. I want to ask you something and shift gears here a little bit because 
you graduated from college with a degree in political science, and I'm a political junkie, so that makes me very happy. Um, <laughs> so what was it that drew you to major in poli-sci? It was political theory. I love political theory. <laughs> I, you know, I was a psychology major for the first couple of years of college, and then I took intro to political theory, and I was like, oh, nope, this is what I want to study. I mean, the idea of what makes a society run, especially what makes it run well for everybody, is something I'm really, really, really interested in. And yeah, I just think it's so fun. So that's what drew me in. And I, I mean, I was in debate and speech and I was a super nerd in high school. And so a lot of what I read was related to politics even before college, but I never thought about actually majoring in it until I took political theory. Well, that's kind of perfect because it gives you a background for your advocacy that otherwise you wouldn't have. So you already understand a lot about how the system works and and how policies are created and how policies are changed. So that definitely gives you an advantage in doing the work that you're doing, I would think. Yeah, I guess I hadn't, you know... When I was in high school, I wasn't really involved in advocacy, so it was a shift that happened during college, but it makes sense as a disabled person who, uh, you know, found a passion for politics that it totally helps, even if I don't run for office, although I probably will eventually run for some kind of office, but even if I didn't, it would help inform my advocacy for sure. Yeah, and I hope you do run for office because I do think that it's important for us to have diversity in whatever level, whether it's local or state or federal, to have that diversity so that the voices of people who otherwise are not heard come into the conversation and are impacting the decisions that are made. And, you know, I really believe that each of us can do things in our own lives to make a difference in the world fundamentally, if we want to make a difference, we, I believe we have to be working on changing policies because mm-hmm. that's what ultimately creates the change that we're seeking. So it's not either or, but it's both and. And so I, yeah, I, I hope you run for office someday. I will come and help out on your campaign for whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I definitely love what I'm doing now with touring and speaking and stuff, but there is a point where I see that kind of transitioning over. We'll see. I mean, I, I don't have a big desire to, I mean, I know that sounds silly, but like, it's not like I'm like, oh, I got to be a senator someday or I want to be president, like, because I want to lead per se. But I really think that, yeah, there's just, it's about that political theory. Like, how do we create dialogue in America that helps people to understand what is, for example, discriminatory and what's not and like how do we exist in a culture like in a world that's so diverse without like stomping on each other you know what I mean like yeah that's that's the stuff that really interests me and I think if I can communicate that um and try to create policies around that 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 would be really rewarding and also yeah hopefully pretty helpful like I'm really inspired by Martin Luther King Jr. um I read his letter from a Birmingham jail in on Martin Luther King Day just to kind of refresh my memory and and there's a lot of I mean it's not the same at all but there is a lot of overlap with the way you 
see change and progress happen when you look at disability rights oh, and yeah. uh, the black black history and like civil rights and all you know all those things are connected and and one thing I thought was interesting because I do want to run for politics eventually like run for political office but one thing I didn't realize is that he wasn't like he had a pretty bad disapproval rating I mean it was like 75 percent of Americans didn't <laughs> approve of what he was doing and it kind of reminded me that there is also a place for people outside of politics to like make a lot of change and maybe he wouldn't have been able to be an effective political leader because he would have had to compromise so much of the things he was saying to gain enough popularity to win that maybe where he was was actually in the right place. You know what I mean? I do. And I think that's really a very good point because, well, two things. One is our politics are driven to what I think is an unhealthy degree of who do I like as a person? Who would I like, you know, the old, would you want to have a beer with them? I don't want to have a beer with my elected officials. I want them to do the job that I sent them to whatever office it is to do. I can drink with other people. Thank you very much. Um, (laughs) You know, that drives me a bit batty because it's just, that is not what this should be based on. This should not be a popularity contest. It should be about who has the best vision and who has the best ideas for getting something actually done. So, you know, put me in that camp of pragmatic, but also I do, there's so much intersectionality between, I mean, honestly being black in this country is a disability, you know? Uh Um, So there's so much intersection between if you're black or you're indigenous or you're Hispanic or you're disabled. I mean, there are obstacles that are structurally created obstacles for all those groups. So to take things from Dr. King or to take things from someone who is a powerful person in the indigenous community makes sense because the specifics of our battles are different, but the underlying battle is the same. So Yeah, I, I agree. When that kind of went like became pretty evident as I started touring. You know, I sing my songs as a person with a disability, um, you know, a white person with a disability. So I have my own particular lens when I write music, but people of other backgrounds were coming up and saying, wow, that really touched me or like that moved me because of this reason. And I realized like, yeah, the, the, the types of oppression that we are facing are somewhat different but the mechanism or like the idea of oppression is the same emotions are behind it and the same struggle kind of overall is behind it and so to have the music it was really neat to realize that music for example can be one of those bridges that connects a lot of different social groups or like cultural groups you know just because the experience can be kind of related not the same but related and um yeah and that's what I want to do with politics is I want to be like here's the connecting thread let's figure out a way to like use this because if you got all the minorities or oppressed groups together under the same banner of human rights I mean can you imagine that would be way more than the majority you know what I'm saying like it would be be a significant proportion of the population and the impact would be so much greater than when we all sort of do our thing in our little, our little silos. And, yeah. 
you said something just now that actually brings me to the, one of the things I could not possibly let you get off of this conversation without talking about, and that is your music, which is so gorgeous. And a lot of your music is folk music, and that was the background music of my childhood. And oh, the, cool. the fiddle tunes that you play put me in mind of the music of Appalachia. And for me, even though I grew up in Manhattan, <laughs> and that, <laughs> music, you know, that music feels yeah. like home. And you grew up in Minnesota. So what drew you to that particular music? Well, I mean, kind of a windy road. The whole, my whole experience with music has kind of been like picking up a breadcrumb and trying it out and then trying the next thing that showed up. But, you know, I did classical music all the way through high school in my public schools, which is why I love playing at public schools for kids. Because <laughs> it's like, hey, you can do music um, here and it can lead somewhere. But after that, I decided I didn't want to keep doing classical. When I went to college, I was just kind of disillusioned. Like we had a really tight orchestra and all my best friends were in it. And when you get to college, the professor was close to retirement and he wasn't really engaged. And it was just kind of like, it wasn't fun. Like there was no energy behind it. And so Mm -hmm. I decided I wasn't going to do classical music anymore, but I still wanted to perform. And there was a Celtic fiddle group on campus. And so I got involved with that. And every semester, a group of four or five students we would cluster up into groups of four or five, I guess, and learn just music for fun once a week. And then we'd have a concert at the end of the year with all the little groups performing what they worked on. Um, And that kept me going through college. And then when I moved back to Duluth, I got sick after my junior year and transferred home to my hometown in Duluth, Minnesota and graduated from there. And so when I was in Duluth, I started going to a old time fiddle jam. And it's just once a week you go to this little bar and everybody plays tunes and I didn't really know any of them, but I started learning them by ear. And that was when I got really connected to that music because you begin to realize how cool it is that people have been playing the same melodies for like hundreds of years. And like, who else has played this song? And like, what was their story? And that idea of history living on through music really kind of grabbed me. And that's where I got pretty pretty into um, old time and Celtic music was that realization that it's always been passed down by ear, you know, and that so many different people from so many different backgrounds have played it. And it's not like necessarily even performing. It's just like playing it, you know, in their living room or whatever. And so it's just a whole other side of music that I hadn't really explored that I'm pretty fascinated by. I'm not like a historian or anything, but I really do have a lot of respect like reverence I guess maybe is the right word for that kind of music it shows when you play I mean and anyone who hasn't seen Gail and if you can see her perform and I'm definitely linking to her website where you can find her touring schedule you should but you should if you can't see her live then you should definitely go on YouTube because her music is just beautiful and oh it it just it fills my soul when I listen to it and I I just I also love how you've used your creativity to solve problems that would have been obstacles to music that your disability creates for instance you hold your violin like a cello to play it yeah that was that's like a thing with disability is that a lot of people say oh my gosh how did that 
come about. And, you know, as a little kid with a disability, you're adapting everything all the time. You know, I reach cereal with a reacher and like, you know, I do all sorts of things differently. So when I decided I wanted to play violin, I never thought, oh, I won't be able to. I just assumed I would have to find a different way to do it. But the part that I didn't realize until I was an adult is that the fact that I got so lucky to have a creative teacher is the part that stands out in that story. Um, you know, I I did adaptive ballet and adaptive gymnastics and adapt, adaptive kayaking. So adapting was nothing new to me, but it definitely was new to my teacher. And she was say, she said pretty honestly, like, I've never done this before and I'm not sure if we'll be able to figure it out, but you have a really good ear, so I want to try to find a way for you to play. And unfortunately, on the road, when I meet people with disabilities, a lot of people are not given that permission to explore. You know, yeah. they say, oh, this, this won't work. You won't be able to do this. And I'm so lucky and very grateful that she just happened to be like the right person for me at the right time. Because I, you know, I I wasn't expecting not to be able to play. I thought, you know, of course, I'll figure something out. But if I hadn't had a teacher who also was willing to help me, I don't know if I would have been able to. So well, I, I think that... The loveliest part about that, besides that she was willing to try something that she didn't know how to do, which often we adults are not willing to do, is that you now get to be out there as an example for other people, for other kids, for other adults to say, here's an obstacle. I bet you can come up with some creative way to overcome it so that this person can play this instrument or do this thing. So yeah. I, that's very cool. And that actually le- leads me right into the thing I want to end this conversation with. Okay. Which is, I want to ask you to give the listeners three simple actions that they can take in support of disability rights. You, you know, your teacher being creative, was so supportive of you. What are some of the things, simple things that we out here can do to make a difference? Yeah. Well, I think the very first thing would be to take some time to learn about disability issues, especially in electoral politics. Like, for example, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both released specific plans on what they plan to do relating to disability rights, which hasn't really been done before. So it's starting to gain some traction. And then look up the term disability pride and really familiarize familiarize yourself with that idea of disability not being negative because there's a very healthy disability culture like right at our fingertips with the internet but we just haven't been told about it the second thing I would say is if you read about disability rights and disability pride and you feel all fired up and you want to get involved a good place to start is to look up your uh, a local center for independent living they're Nonprofits that are in every single state. They were created in the 70s and they do disability rights work, but they also create programming to help people be more independent. And it's probably the most empowered kind of agency that you'll work for. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not it's not paternalistic. It's not out of pity. It's, it's to empower people to live their best lives. So they're called Centers for Independent Living. Um, and then the third thing I would say is to stop spending money at inaccessible locations. And it's something that, you know, a lot of people until they become friends with me say, oh, I didn't realize this place had steps. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I 
I can't go there because I can't get in. You know what I mean? And and there's many barriers to access, but I think the most obvious one is things like a building that even 30 years after the Americans with Disabilities Act hasn't taken the necessary steps to allow people to get inside their building. You know, and that, that at this point, we have to vote with our dollars because it's already the law. So they're ignoring the law. And so let's take it to society and say, Let's not give those people money. Let's only support the places that have done the work to become welcoming to everybody because it's discrimination 30 years later. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, it absolutely is. We don't talk about it like that. Unfortunately, we always talk about the money issue and blah, blah, blah. But 30 years is a long time to never, ever time. put any money into it. You know what I mean? So, so that's what I would say. Don't spend money at places. And if you do decide to stop spending money at a place you've been to a lot, like pretty frequently, or you've frequented, a, a, you know, for many years, I would suggest talking to the owner or emailing or just kind of explaining why you're not coming there anymore, because many business owners are also uneducated, and they don't think about how many people they're losing out on serving because they have two steps, you know what I mean? And right. so that's something that I would recommend. But at the very least, don't put your money in their pockets at this point in time. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we, Galen and we had dinner in Chicago and when I was making the reservation, one of the things I had to do was ask really specific questions about accessibility of the restaurant and accessibility of their restrooms. And because People without disabilities often don't think about it, but it's it's something that we need to be more aware of. So I appreciate your saying that, and I appreciate your giving our listeners an opportunity to take action, an action that's really simple and direct and very doable. And Galen actually sent me a whole list of organizations and information that I'm going to put in the episode notes. So there's even more information about about these three steps than we're able to talk about in this conversation. So this has been such a great talk, Galen. I'm so yeah. glad we finally got to do this. This is really yes. wonderful. Yeah, Thank thanks you for so doing much. It. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely. So for those of you who are interested in doing more, do remember, check the episode notes, and you'll also find a link to Galen's website, which is violinscratches.com. And you can find her touring schedule there and more about her disability activism. And on my website, I'll list her three suggested actions and make it really simple for you to do something. Some small thing matters more than you can even probably believe. And Mm -hmm. lastly, I just want to say that I know that each of us can make a difference and that each of us can be our own type of activist. So find the thing that speaks to you take an action, go out in the world, take another action and just rinse and repeat. And we actually will make a difference in the world. So thank you for joining me for this conversation. And I will be back with another episode very soon.